Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, USA Today bestselling author Kate Hollihan has joined me in the interrogation room to answer a few questions. Kirkus Reviews named Kate's first book, The Widower's Wife, among the best of 2016. She's additionally penned Lies She Told and Dark Turns, both to critical acclaim, and her latest release, which just came out yesterday, is entitled One Little Secret. Prior to becoming an author, Kate graduated from Princeton University in 2002 and was an award-winning journalist and television producer. Her articles have appeared in Business Week, The Boston Globe, The Record Newspaper, and on numerous websites. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Kate. Thanks for making time to join me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Congratulations on this latest release. I'm currently reading One Little Secret, and it's an immediately intriguing novel. Uh, For readers who are new to you as an author, what would you like them to know about this book? Sure. Well, the the premise of the story is that we have three couples that are all neighbors in the same town. Um, One couple is is new to the town, and they decide uh, a way to kind of deepen their their superficial friendships with some of their neighbors and um, establish roots in the community is to rent a beach house and ask the neighbors to come in on it with them for a week. And so uh, they do this. Uh, The kids are all at camp at the time. And... uh, they are drinking. Secrets are released, uh, and then in the morning, one of the uh, one of the people in the house ends up dead. And so it's kind of a locked room mystery in that you know somebody in the house did it. And uh, Detective Gabby Watkins, uh, with the East Hampton Police Force, is kind of charged with figuring out who did it. Now, this book's already garnering uh, tremendous praise from folks like uh, Good Morning America and Crime Reads, Booklist, and Library Journal, and 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 more, many more than that. Um, with every new release being a, another little piece of your soul venturing out into the cold, dark world for criticism and review, that has to be really exciting. It is exciting. Um, it's true. I, I always feel a little um, conflicted about publication day because it's kind of when you send your baby out there to a beauty pageant and see if anyone thinks they're pretty, which is weird because, yes. you know, it's your baby. Um, but I, I've been very pleased so far with the reviews. It's it's always wonderful when you feel like people get the story and um and relate to some of the characters or you know hate the people that um you know you you kind of wanted to tip them off might not be the best kind of people and so so that's great. Now your writing seems uh, to me to have a whole lot in common with uh, like Harlan Coben and, and correct me if I'm wrong but it, it seems like you cast ordinary people into these extraordinary circumstances to see how they fare and how they overcome. Um, it also seems to me then that any one of your readers could end up being one of your characters. Uh, well, I try to do that. Yes, I really. I think that. What I try to do in in psychological thrillers is take people that have a variety of of flaws, not necessarily flaws that are so outrageous that you can't imagine anyone having them, and then, Mm -hmm. um, you know, throw them into very difficult situations and kind of through the conflict that emerges there, that's where the drama comes from. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I I hope that um, the average person doesn't have the worst of some of my characters' <laughs> problems, but uh, but but certainly with some of them, you know, there are characters there where the worst problem that they have is maybe kind of a, a, a feeling of a lost sense of self and insecurity, and I think that certainly people can can relate to that. Yes, uh, certainly more more than just the two of us for certain. Uh, yeah. 
a, a lot of writers uh, and a lot of writer uh, writing sages or writing advisors talk about um, you know encouraging new writers, new uh, aspiring authors to to write in series and to create this you know lovable character um, you know with serious flaws that readers will attach to and and buy time and again and it, again if I, if I'm wrong correct me but it, it seems like you write entirely in standalones and have new characters every time. Um, how do you go about writing in su- that in such a way that your readers from your old books will equally enjoy and latch on to your new books? Right. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I would love to kind of think of a serious character. I think the thing with psychological thrillers is, um, you know, after you've unraveled the, all the mystery, um, ideally your character should grow into a place or be left in a place where um, this, the same kind of drama couldn't happen to them. You know, it's not that you're taking a character that can really uh, go and investigate yet another crime. Um, In addition to that, though, I think that what readers, what keeps my readers uh, going from book to book is kind of some of the same themes. And also, um, I guess, uh, kind of the way I see the world and look and look through my character's eyes. And I think that they're they get attached to to maybe that view on your your subject of, of theme, I, I spoke with uh, Karen Cleveland, uh, I guess about a week and a half, two weeks ago now, and she's a, a former CIA analyst who's written a, a couple novels mostly centered on the idea of insider threat, which you know is when you know someone close to you mm-hmm. in a position of trust betrays uh, your trust, your confidence, or, or far worse. And it mm-hmm. seems like a lot of your work touches on that similar theme, and I, I wonder what, what your inspiration is for your, your general overall writing. Sure. Well, I think that a lot of crime is personal, right? I mean, the people, it's its kind of, it's unfortunate, but the, the people I think that we often hurt most um, are the people closest to us because they're the ones that we have the most interactions with, right? And yes. ones who our actions affect the most. So um, I try to keep it realistic that way. And um, as far as getting the the ideas for it, you know, I I look at problems that, that real you know, the people, the people have, maybe not every single person have, certainly not every single person, but, and then I try to, um, to kind of put people with those problems, maybe juxtapose them with people that have uh, conflicting problems that, you know, when you kind of mesh the two of them together, it creates a much bigger problem. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of how the stories play out. Yeah, it also seems like a, a really good recipe for good reality TV. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have... <laughs> I just um, you'd like to think that the producers in a reality television show would have to step in at some point. <laughs> in one of my books, they couldn't just let it play out. <laughs> yeah, Big Brother gone very wrong. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. and incorporating the the East Hampton Police Department into this book um, without making you know this into a police procedural. How did you go about? Uh, researching enough procedure to make that part realistic without necessarily becoming the the focus of the book. Well, I um since I I knew I wanted a female detective character because I um I was dealing with uh, with domestic violence and mm-hmm. um and sexual assault and so I wanted kind of a, a a female detective's perspective, how how she might view that case. And so since I'm not a female detective, I uh, I found one. I called around New Jersey, New Jersey police departments um, looking for female detectives. And I was lucky that Bloomfield, New Jersey, has two female detectives on the force. And so I contacted their 
the head of their detective department and um, their captain. And, and he was, he put me in touch with um, a detective, Shona Maldonado, who's a female detective there. And, and she was uh, very kind and kind of um, let me interview her and took me around the station and told me kind of some of the cat, the cases that tend to be thrown her way. Mm-hmm. Um, really not because, but in part because some, there are some t- kinds of cases where women might be more comfortable speaking to another woman, yes. a female detective, particularly if they've felt um, recently uh, violated or intimidated by a man. They might not mm-hmm. want to be sitting in a room with kind of a, a big, well-meaning yes. male detective who's who's asking them about, you know, very intimate questions uh, yes. about their assault. And so she kind of, she was able to kind of tell me why these cases got thrown her way a lot. And then also how she sees it, how she's, how she's able to balance her sympathy for people. And at the same time, kind of trying to unpack whether or not they're telling the truth mm-hmm. because you're still doing an investigation. And uh, she told me one story that, that really stuck with me that, that did not, of course, make it into the book, but uh, just kind of gave me an insight into how she thinks. Uh, there was a, a case where a 12-year-old boy who was in foster care had been removed out of his home along with his brother and put in foster care. Mm-hmm. And he reported to the school nurse that um, the foster father was uh, was molesting him. Oh no! And so it got put, you know. So she ended up investigating it, and mm-hmm. you know, she's talking to this boy, and he's stoically explaining kind of the the different incidents. And she's she said, you know, she left the interview room, and she's you know, she has her own children, and she's in tears almost, you know, try didn't cry in the interview room, but as soon mm-hmm. as the door closes because it's just yeah. so emotional, mm-hmm. and says, well, hey, you know, we got to get these kids out. And the, the foster family had their own kids. Um, as well as the foster kids in there. And so the during the course of investigation, you know, the kids are removed from the home, all the kids. And it, um, it turns out that the foster father was not actually in town. I guess he, he drove a truck. He was not in town during any of the incidents. And um, the, the young boy thought that I guess if he could get his foster parents ruled unfit, he'd be returned to his yes. um, original family. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought, you know, and it really clearly stuck with her that she just felt how how hard it was when there were really no winners. I mean, she had to do her job, mm-hmm. right? And she's trying to be the, to protect these children, but at the same time, you know, the trauma that can be caused was by a lie, and the the child, you know, also in some not that lying is ever is ever ever good, but you can sympathize with the desire to be go back to his family mm-hmm. at kind of at any cost, and so. I tried to bring some of that to, to my to my story that you know even the bad guys sometimes think that they have no choice or that they're doing something that's for um, at least the greater good for themselves and and how that that leads to additional problems. Yeah, and I, I think that makes for much more interesting villains um, or you know even just a protagonist that or sorry antagonist that um, you know uh, people generally don't just wake up evil and go out wrecking havoc there's there's a whole backstory there's all these reasons why they're doing the thing we're doing and and oftentimes in in real life um and in in my own investigations experience people are are rationalizing the things they're doing and you know it's for them a lesser of the evils and they've you know kind of had to make that that really tough choice and it makes for much more interesting writing um and it also very closely mirrors reality right 
I agree. Yeah. Now, I also wanted to get uh, your point of view on point of view. Um, do you consciously plan to, to write your books in a, in a particular voice or do your characters kind of flesh that out for you as, as they're forming? The characters definitely do. I do a lot of plotting beforehand. So um, I, because I think that with thrillers, you know, you're trying to surprise the reader and these are smart readers that are looking the whole time for the clues, you know? <laughs> yes. So in order to really surprise them, you have to kind of do your best to, to, to think it out and put a lot more thought than, than they are, you know, in the reading of it. And so um, do a lot of plotting. But as far as, uh, you know, how I try to, how I do point of view, I really try to kind of immerse myself into the character and describe the room the way they would through, you know, through their eyes based on their mood at the time and the backstory that I know they have. Um, and and so I, I do do a lot of work with that and, and try to, if there's not one voice, even though this one is close third person, you know, the mm. little, the, you know, the little uh, transcriber is kind of sitting somewhere between the ear and the brain of the, of the, uh, of the point yes. of view character. Yeah. Now, someone uh, once told me that the, uh, the best way to understand something is, is to teach it. And I also think that applies to writing. Um, for me, writing is it's a, such an intrinsic effort that I, I often write about things that I personally want to explore, better understand, and I, I wonder how much of, of that also is part of your writing process as you're ferreting out your plots and your outlines. Sure. I mean, I think that you have to feel kind of passionate about a subject or, or interested in order to, to really immerse yourself in, in, in a way that you can make an a novel feel real. Uh, in fact, not with this book, but with my first book, Dark Turns, um, I knew that I wanted the action to take place in this competitive dance school because I thought that I was kind of dealing with these um, these very privileged um, kids and this one person that was uh, pr particularly amoral and I wanted them to be in kind of a state of constant competition. Mm -hmm. So I thought a dance school would do that, but I hadn't ever taken dance. So I enrolled in ballet for a year. <laughs> and I took wow. adult ballet classes uh, two to three times a week. And by the way, I've never danced. <laughs> and, um, and I did it so much. And a lot of these women, because I, I'm, you know, I'm in my 30s. Uh, she and at that time I was I was I guess like 33. Uh, the a lot of these women had been professional dancers or at least danced all the way through college and were kind of keeping up with it. Mm -hmm. But I was able to interview them and that was great. And at the end, um, they put me in the recital, which wow. I thought was, was pretty, yeah. yeah. Mind you, way, way in the back, way in the back. But still there. That's really, that's really fantastic. Yeah, but it was, it was cool. And, um, and so I guess with this book, one little secret, I wanted to, um, I wanted to explore uh, kind of the the downside of polite society in some ways mm -hmm. you know that yes. i think i think in in suburbia there's a there's a high premium placed on on everyone being kind of polite and friendly and and uh mm -hmm. outward appearances we live in a facebook world where people post the good stuff they kind of don't post when you know the house is a mess and uh and mm -hmm. the kids are screaming or whatever it is so yes. uh so i wanted to to explore, well, what do you do when you have people that kind of have these, as a result, these kind of superficial friendships and they're put in a situation like at a beach house where, you know, they're, they're drinking a lot and they're in a closed environment 
and things start to come out that chip away at kind of these perfect veneers. And, and so that was the, the theme that I wanted to explore. And then I guess how I researched it was I did a lot of, um, I read a lot of books about, about domestic violence. Also, when I was in high school, I had uh, volunteered for a long time at a domestic violence shelter. So that kind of, um, that, that informed my writing that was already there. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's what I, that's how I I researched it. But I do think also one thing that was really interesting with this book is when you go to a domestic violence shelter, you're also dealing with women that, um, you know, are, are you, they're in a position where they needed a shelter, where they couldn't go to a hotel or they couldn't, you know, they didn't have family that they could go to. So I wanted, but I don't think that means that it doesn't happen in w- more affluent communities. I think that it's just kind of the, the people that need to use the services get counted and often are also more likely to call the police. So I yes. did a lot of kind of um, research with books and into um, domestic violence in, in kind of more affluent communities and, and in more affluent marriages to, to frame the story. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it, people in, in that position and that, that more affluent society um, are going to be far less likely to, to report anything like that. Um, you know, a lot for, I think, for a lot of the same reasons you've kind of talked about, what are the neighbors going to think? Um, and, you know, what, is, what are our the impact going to be on, you know, our standing and our reputation. And it's, um, in, in my, my experience, those are, are some of the, some of the more abusive relationships because of that, uh, that additional societal leverage. And it's, it's really sad. And, uh, hopefully, um, you know, will eventually be broken down over time, but you know, it's, there's a, there's a lot to it, especially in our, like you said, our Facebook world where we're looking at everyone's highlight reels and trying to, um, make our real life, uh, you know, kind of correlate to that. Right. Now I've also heard somewhere and it's a, a major theme of this, this podcast. Um, but it, it takes about a, I, I think a decade of consistent blood, sweat and tears to become an, an overnight success. And I wonder what your journey was like from inspiration to published writer to best selling author. Yeah, well, um, and and I'm still working on being an overnight <laughs> success. I don't know if I can if I can use success yet, but um, you know, I was a journalist for years. I uh, I started off uh, working for the Record newspaper, which is was a, a daily newspaper in um, in northern New Jersey, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I I interned at the the Boston Globe and kind of wet my appetite for crime writing. I covered an OxyContin theft ring at the time. It was yeah. kind of funny because. I was in college and, you know, just, just interning there. And, you know, there were some like drugstores that got robbed. And so they kind of like, you know, put the kid on it because they have more important things to do. And, and so, and then it turned out that that summer, it was just like these, this group was hitting one every couple of days. And, um, and, and eventually the police caught them. Um, they were, they were like a, I guess a, it was, it was interesting. They weren't quite a gang. They were more, um, they were more addicts turned dealers, but also addicts. So, um, but it was, but anyway, so that, that was interesting. And I think I started uh, kind of writing fiction stories uh, on the side. And then, um, 
and then I eventually was working at a Business Week magazine covering technology, which I liked, but you know, you had to write in such kind of a tight format because it's a business magazine and there are investors looking for, you know, actionable information. And, and so it's, uh, sometimes I felt that the actual storytelling of it got lost a bit. And so I was satisfying that urge by, you know, staying up and, and writing fiction and nothing really came of it until, uh, I had my second child and left journalism and then said, okay, I'm going to really write fiction full time. And um, about two years later, I, I published my first book. Now, who was your first writing mentor or if, if you had one and what was that relationship like? Well, sure. Well, my first writing mentor was my grandfather. He was a journalist. Um, oh. He had an aviation magazine. And what I got from him was a sense that, you know, you always have to do the research, right? And um, I bring that even to my fiction. I think that I can imagine things, but um, in order for it to really feel real, I have to immerse myself first in, in knowing a lot about it before I can begin extrapolating and, and making up things that, that will uh, match reality. And so that's why I, I find a female detective if I'm writing a female detective or I... Um, you know, try and read a lot of uh, first-person accounts of, of domestic violence if I'm if I'm going to write a story about that. And so, uh, it, so that that meant a lot to me. And then also in college, I I took a lot of journalism uh, classes, even though I was a politics major because journalism isn't a major at Princeton. And I was lucky enough to have Barton Gelman as one of my professors, who's won the Pulitzer multiple mm -hmm. times. Wow. And he really kind of talked about um, how you tell someone's story and, and the how action reveals character. And, and I think uh, having learning from him was really uh, instrumental. When did you know that you could write fiction and that someone other than your mother wanted to read what you had to say? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it's it's always a game every book. I'm hoping that someone other than my mother will read <laughs> what I have to say, or my husband, who I like, make read it. <laughs> but um, you know, my my poor husband, he's he's always just reading it to see if like he's influenced any of the male characters and if I'm taking out arguments. You know, he's like he's like, what did she kill somebody for now? <laughs> but um, but you know, I I I think I just. In some ways, it didn't matter, right? Who read it? It's just I think if you have to, if you have these stories to tell, you just you kind of have to tell them. And I think that you you just hope that other people enjoy them and and can keep reading them. But I, I don't think I could stop myself from telling stories if I tried. So, having been in the in the industry and in the business for for several years now, what what do you wish you had known about writing and publishing back when you first started submitting queries and trying to get your book published? Genre. I think that um, when I first wrote, when I wrote my first book, I just wanted to tell like what I thought was a cool story. And it had elements. It was like everything in the kitchen sink, right? It, it would have been impossible to shelve. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I didn't, I didn't know about genre. And then my agent, who I think I was lucky that she kind of recognized that I was a good writer if, um, if a confused one and said, you know, there's kind of these rules of books that should be, you know, if you're, if you're writing a, a thriller, you're, uh, you kind of can't veer off into these long 
passages that would be more suited for, let's say, a women's fiction book and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and really told me that I, I had to kind of study the genre I wanted to write in. And, and I did. And then, you know, came back with a rewritten version of that first book that ended up being Dark Turns. Now, I saw that you're on the, the Thriller Fest schedule later this week, and I, I think I remember you're part of a discussion panel. Is that right? I am. It's called, uh, I believe it's, it's about how to make interesting, interesting protagonists, but it's something about Superwoman. I, I, I mean, they always have these pithy titles, and unfortunately, yes. I don't remember it. But the the just, <laughs> the the, uh, the crux of it is that um, it's about how to write interesting protagonists. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's it's going to be a, a a really informative week. I've I've heard lots of fantastic things from uh, from other authors who've you know uh, come last year for their their first thriller fest, and so it's uh, it's going to be really good. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, now, beyond your, your writing and, and your family, what are you passionate about? What what gets you out of bed in the morning and moving with a purpose? Jeez, well, a few things. Uh, one, uh, my kids and my dog, because if I sleep in, I'm just, I can't. <laughs> so oh. so that'll, that'll do it. Also, um, you know, I, I guess as a hobby, I love music. I was in a band for a while. So many writers, actually. Music mm -hmm. seems to go along with it. Yes. Um, so I... I, you know, I, I still play the piano and sing, even though I don't, I'm no longer in my twenties, like rocking out in little clubs in New York, but which is fun. I show my kids pictures and I'm like, wasn't mommy cool. And they're like, you're never cool. But, um, but yeah, that's it. Now uh, with writers also being pretty voracious readers, uh, I wonder if you have a favorite fictional detective or investigator you're reading right now. Oh, favorite fiction. You know, I read a lot of psychological thrillers where there aren't as many detective characters. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I've recently, I read Wendy Walker's latest. I thought that was great. I read Riley Sager's uh, book with, um, you know, about the about this hotel where there are all these rules and you find out why this woman has to obey all the rules. It's really kind of creepy and, um, and, and definitely a page turner. And uh, I'm currently reading uh, The Mother-in-Law, which is a new author to me. Um, but um, I am, it, it's funny, I'm highlighting passages and I'm sitting there thinking, am I highlighting those because they remind me of my mother-in-law or am I highlighting them because they're good writing? I don't know. But, um, <laughs> There's got to be some commonality between all mothers-in-law. Yeah. I, I think so, yeah. Now, I asked this last question of, of all the authors who come on the show, so I guess keeping kind of that, that last one in mind, um, but God forbid it should come to pass, Kate, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional oh. investigator, assassin, or revenge artist would you want working your case? Oh, um, well, I think it would have to be Jack Reacher. <laughs> <laughs> That was that was almost like you had that queued up. That was very quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just mean you, you know he's gonna you know he's gonna win, and then Tom Cruise is gonna pay, play him in the movies, so that way I can, uh, you know, my death will live on. <laughs> yes, yes, immortalized forever. That's yeah. right. Where where can readers connect with you? Find your works? Maybe get updates or a newsletter on your releases. Oh sure. Well, uh, my Facebook page I update pretty regularly. That's just uh, Kate Hollihan. 
at Facebook. And then um, on my webpage, that's www.katehollihan.com. That's uh, and Kate spelled with a C because it's uh, short for Catherine. Well, I greatly appreciate you making time to, to join us today and share your expertise. It's been, uh, it's been great having you on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Great conversation. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been best-selling author Kate Holohan. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.